Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, I talk to Once and Sing Street director John Carney about his new movie Flora and Son, about a mother played by Eve Hewson trying to reconnect with her son through music. With the release of Ken Loach's final movie, The Old Oak, I talked to his longtime screenwriter, Paul Laverty, about their long working relationship that includes such classics as The Wind That Shakes the Barley and I, Daniel Blake. Plus, Esther McCarthy reviews the much talked about Fair Play, the new erotic thriller landing in cinemas this week and on Netflix next week. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore 40, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. I seem to be talking fast. I think it's there's a lot on the show this week. I feel like I have to get to it. But I should wish you all a happy weekend and hope you're well and you survived the very inclement weather. And indeed, if you're of that persuasion, you enjoyed the marvellous sporting occasion last Saturday evening. What a remarkable match. What a remarkable sporting contest. Uh, Absolutely wonderful. Everton beating Brentford. I'm joking, of course. I'm talking about the rugby. I tweeted that and I'm not sure everybody got the joke. The rugby was wonderful, as was Everton beating Brentford. But anyway, for for me. Now, we have a lot on the show this week, but I can't not mention uh, presenting a film show, The Sad Passing of Michael Gambon at the age of 82. He was actually Irish. People forget he was born in Dublin and moved there when he was 15. He had a long, long career in stage, TV, movies, uh, just remember the singing detective on ITV he was brilliant in that there are too many to name but it's funny the, the thing that came up all week long was his role in Harry Potter Dumbledore of which he was brilliant and which he took over from Richard Harris of course and adored by kids my kids love the Harry Potter movies and, and the Dumbledore character that there's something paternal obviously about them but it, it's a funny thing you have this long long career and I spoke to Fiona Shaw once and she said the same thing about Harry Potter you know Harry Potter was a, a couple of weeks out of her career that involved roles beyond her wildest dreams and yet that's the thing people remember for and I'm not saying it's a bad thing that that's why Michael Gambon is remembered but he did a huge amount of things but for a certain generation he will always be the second incarnation of Dumbledore so R.I.P. the great Michael Gambon. Now this week, let's start here. I can't go on like this. Okay, let's go. No, I mean in life. Oh, this can't be my story. Living in a shoebox with a kid who hates me and his dad who doesn't see me. This can't be my narrative. He rejected your Prezi, so what? You didn't even buy it, in fairness, and you forgot his birthday. But you are a great mother, am I? Now that was Eve Hewson being told she is actually a good mother. And that's from the new movie Flora and Son, which is on Apple TV. It was released last week in the cinema and it lands this Friday the 29th on Apple TV. And it is John Carney's latest movie. So it involves music. John Carney, who gave us things like Sing Street and once and Bachelor's Walk in this floor played by Eve Houston she plays a young mother living in Dublin and a single mother who's living with her estranged slightly troubled son he's a rebellious teenager he's a bit of a petty thief and she's encouraged to find him a hobby so she rescues a guitar from a skip which he doesn't really have any interest in but she goes online and starts getting music lessons from Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's a kind of former singer-songwriter who may have fallen on hard times, who's really good at teaching guitar and singing. And he does a great job in this, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And they form a real lovely bond over this computer screen. And then things start to change with her son. I will say no more than that. Jack Rayner is in it as well, as Max's father. He's very funny in it as well. This is a really sweet story. Uh, It really puts a smile on your face. You could say maybe it's a bit hokey in places. 
Life is hokey, as I always say. I really like this. Now, it is from the great John Carney, who, as you know, as I mentioned, gave us once and Sing Street and makes glorious musical movies. He also did that series I really enjoyed on Amazon TV, Modern Love, about all these short vignettes about love story based on letters to the New York Times, I think it was. So I sat down with him in a hotel earlier in the week and chatted about Flora and Son and a bit more besides. Was one of the motivations of this, I read, that you wanted to show that Zooms living on the computer can sometimes be a good thing and that there might be joy to be found in those places and it's not all Snapchat and people being bullied online and that kind of thing? Well, that wasn't the original starting point of the movie, I'll be honest. I'd like to say it was (laughs) and I've nailed it perfectly. But it was an accident. Um and an observation that we realized at the end of the movie was like, much and all as the internet can be problematic, mm-hmm. we're all dealing with this new technology in our lives. God, we're so ambivalent about it. Um, but I have to admit, there's times when I, I don't know, you know, create something online, share it with something, somebody get immediate feedback, see somebody who I haven't seen for years, yeah. Or just read something that I would have taken, you know, that I go, oh, I'm kind of glad I'm living now. And I yeah. do complain about it a lot, but but maybe there's some corners of, of the internet that, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Like, it's, we're, at the, we're in the first minute yeah. of this invention. It's not all bad, as your yeah. film clearly shows. Mm-hmm. Tell me this, the music, and it's almost a cliche to say this about your uh, films, but it's front and centre, and it's great, and a lot of it's quite modern, and it's not just three chords and the truth. But... That said, one of the nicest songs ever, and maybe his best, Tom Waits's I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You. A beautiful song, and what you do with it, it's, it's, it's a brilliant kind of motif in it. Yeah. But Tom Waits is well known for, you know, not wanting his music to be used and has taken people to court and all that. And I don't want to trouble your defamation lawyers, but did you obviously got permission and spoke to him about so, this or his people? Yeah, I wrote Tom Waits. I was going to say Tom there for a second now that I, that, you know. <laughs> Best buds. Uh, Tom, I wrote a letter to Tom Waits because here's the thing. I'd heard that he did, wasn't a massive fan of that song. Oh, really? Oh, so so I heard, yeah, so I was worried. And somebody said, you should write because he may not give it to you. Not, not for that reason, but mm-hmm. because he's like, why don't he put on one of my pianos? So I wrote him a letter to say, I understand that I hope that I don't fall in love with you is probably a bit of a parody song for you because you're a piano guy. And it's like, mm. that's C, yeah. F, and G. Yeah. And it's very simple, very direct, in a way that it is naive. Yeah. And I think he was having a bit of a joke with that song. And did he say he was when he came back? No, I just heard. Okay. Uh, well, there must be a reason. And also, it's the only one, I think on that album, it's the only acoustic song. Everything else is piano-based. There's a couple of acoustics yeah. in the background there. Yeah. But he's a piano man. And it felt to me like that song stood out. It is an unusual mm-hmm. song. And it's not actually really in Tom Waits' oeuvre, is it? No, I guess not. You're ruining it for me now. <laughs> but did he say, yes, you can have yeah, this? Yeah, he okay. did. He, he, he did. We got, we, he gave us permission. And I, but, but I think part of my pitch was this song uh, spoke to me when I was 14. In a, and I could tell him the night that it did. Yeah. And, and I, my point, I think, was something like, you know, that's all that I strive to do with this movie and the movies. I don't know if you've seen any of my films. And um, he gave us permission and he liked the context of it and okay. that it wasn't just a needle drop. Okay. And has he seen the movie subsequently? Do you oh, know? I have no idea. Okay. I don't know. Okay. I, 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 I shudder to think of Tom Waits looking at anything that I've done. <laughs> come, come. Well, you say uh, maybe you've seen some of uh, my movies to him. I've seen them all. And one thing that just occurred to me as I was thinking about it this morning was obviously they're very musical and it's about the redemptive power of music so often. But when you look back, and, in, and of course, Modern Love as well, there's always romance in them. I mean, I don't think there's anything you've done that hasn't had some, you know, sous-sense of romance. I, are you a very romantic person? I think that I am quite romantic, um, but I don't believe that love, you know, I don't believe that we walk off into the sunset no. and, and it's all, and hold hands and, no. you know, we're, you know, I have two small kids, myself and Marcella, you know, we fight like cats and dogs twice a year. You. It's hard at the best of times with kids, with all the privilege in, in the world. Um, so I 
do believe in romance and all of that, but I, I, I want to do it in a way. So I basically want to make, I love musicals. I love American in Paris and Singing in the Rain. Um, and I want to make those movies, but I don't think people, my feeling was people are never going to buy that mm. now. Now, I was wrong because Damien Chazelle made one. That's a cliched romantic music, full of romance and all that, yeah. and it worked perfectly well for, for some people. Um, I want to have my cake and eat it. You know, I want to have the fun of a musical in which people are creating and putting on a show, whether it's an album or whatever, but I'm not going to ever give the Hollywood ending because I think it's kind of, you know, it's, it's having made Bachelor's Walk just before I made Once, we all realized there's a great sort of bittersweet sort of, there, there's a reality about Bachelor's Walk, but it's also got a real romance to it. Mm. Um, but it's not, we didn't have happy, happy ending. Like season one ended with them actually listening to a Tom Waits song and all crying and none of them gets what they want. Yeah, I, I remember. Talking of love and all that stuff, I really liked Modern Love. And it's a matter of record on this station that you're mm -hmm. talking about and that I told Pat Kenny to watch it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, not every episode was successful as the others, but that's, you know, 20, but some of them were amazing. And I wonder, you know, there's like episodes of The Sopranos that have become freestanding things that people just watch, even if they know nothing about the show. The one with Anne Hathaway, where she's dealing with bipolar, mm -hmm. I just think it's such a brilliant piece of TV that... It captures what that condition might be like. I'm wondering, was that the episode you got the most reaction to? It may be not, but it just seems to me that's a free-floating piece of TV that might have a life right. long after Modern Love is forgotten yeah. about. I mean, I do think that it was the, for sure the one that we got the most attention from. Um, and it's, it's weird because people, people looked at it as a kind of responsible but... Um, you know, a, a responsible portrayal of a mental illness, but one that was done in a way that, that felt like uh, the author, which in that case was me, uh, knew what they were talking about, which made me think that I was a bit bipolar. And I rang the woman who wrote the column and I was telling her, you know, uh, about my life and saying, and I actually, <laughs> I wanted her to okay the script because I thought, she would yeah. say, oh, it's gimmicky, or, and she loved yeah. it. And she's bipolar, and she's written numerous books on it. Mm -hmm. And I was describing my life to her, and she said, oh, you definitely have a bit of bipolar in you. Right. And I don't know that I do. I certainly struggle, like, you know, with, with uh, you know, anxiety and worry and concern. And I, fl you know, go flat during the day for periods of time where I just want to, like, go asleep. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that gave me an insight into that piece when I read it and how to translate this. Because I'm, I'm also an optimist mm. and I walk around Dublin walking on air sometimes and then I have a real low. But I'm always pulled out by things like music or seeing people do things and a shared sense of humanity or whatever. And I wanted to do a show in which um, the person was sort of saved in that way by, 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 by and that's why I put music in it yeah. and, and, and all of that. And, but I'm glad you liked it. And it definitely did. Uh, I've got, I get letters about that episode all the time from people. Yeah. Just finally then, you went to school famously in Sing Street. Do you still live in Dublin? Because it seems whether you do or not, and not to compare you to Joyce, but you're probably going to be living out of here artistically all your life and that's why I mentioned Sing Street and my own school and stuff and yeah. no matter where I live I feel it's always going to come back to here do you live here intellectually or physically or both well I, I mean these are the questions all Dubliners uh, <laughs> ask of themselves every morning they wake up yeah. and it's raining and some fool has a protest banner down saying no black fellas whatever shite they're talking about no trans here we go what are we doing this Kip and then it's Tuesday and the sun comes out and we're going through Stephen's Green or we're climbing up Tick Knock and yeah. we're like, oh, this is the best place in the world. Yeah. Something about it. Or you meet somebody who's so funny and charming and witty on a Lewis or a bus that just makes you laugh and you realize this is why I'm here. Mm -hmm. But we're very ambivalent. And I'm very lucky to be able to go away from Dublin, you know, on work and stuff, yeah. or leave Ireland. And as soon as I'm on that Aer Lingus plane and I'm looking back and, I look, and I'm like, oh, now I see 
what I miss. I understand it objectively, and I understand why I keep on telling these stories and being drawn back to these stories. Um, and the Joyce reference in terms, I mean, he, he's an amazing, it's so interesting isn't it, that he would go mm. away yeah. and be run out of the country in many ways and, and exiled, but he couldn't stop writing about that. No, I, I mean, he was forensically writing about, about, about Dublin um, and Ireland and Irish and Ireland. And it is a love-hate thing, yeah. for sure. But I have put down, myself and Marcel have put down our roots quite deep. We've thought about, you know, could we get a flat in New York and raise kids or... Meanwhile, everybody that we know that's in New York is like, we're going to Europe because it's like Trump's yeah. going to get another term here. So they're coming this way. So we felt, you know what? The kids are now, what, seven and three. He's in school. She, we're Dubliners. Yeah. Well, don't apologize. Uh, Flora and Son, by the way, is lovely. I really enjoy um, it, by the way. Thanks a lot for chatting to me. Thank you very much. John Carney there talking to me about his working life in times and, of course, Dublin. But most importantly, his new Apple movie, Flora and some, which you can stream now on Apple TV. Up next, the much-talked-about erotic thriller, Fair Play. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy. Now we turn to the week's new movie releases and we're going to be looking at a movie that's generating a lot of debate and column inches, I think it's fair to say, called Fair Play, which is a Netflix movie, but it's getting a cinema release this week, which means they're probably thinking it could possibly be an awards contention when all that stuff rolls around next year. And as regular listeners know, I am a Wes Anderson devotee. So even though it's only a short film, there is a new 39-minute Wes Anderson movie on Netflix called The Wonderful Story of Harry Sugar, which we're going to get to. Delighted to be joined now by film reviewer Esther McCarthy. Hi, Esther. Hi, John. How are you? Very well. Now, fair play. We've both seen this. Uh, it's it's getting a bit of. I, maybe I've overegged it, but I'd I'd heard a bit about it before I watched it. This kind of uh, high finance psychosexual thriller kind of thing. Tell people what's going on. I really like this and I think there is a load to break down and there's going to be, you know, definitely a lot of chatter about this one, I think. Um, I'd call it maybe the love child of Wall Street and Fatal Attraction because it's a very <laughs> much, um, very much 90s bang off it, I thought, John. Yeah. Um, there, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember all those great and slightly hysterical uh, erotic thrillers that we got in the 90s, like Fatal Attraction and, uh, you know, I was a big fan of uh, that film in particular. I mean, it was a zeitgeisty movie. There mm. were so many, you know, so many pieces written about it. And I always kind of felt, I hope I don't sound like a bunny boiler, I guess, <laughs> when I say I always felt a bit forget Glenn Close, kind of going, okay, I know she's a nut job and all. I know she killed that rabbit. And that's terrible. Spoiler alert about the rabbit, by the yeah. way, sorry. And, uh, but I kind of empathised with her, you know, and I kind of felt, oh, I would like to see these stories maybe told at some stage, but from a female narrative perspective. Mm, and yeah. I think that's what you're getting here from director Chloe Dumont um, with this film. It's set in the world. You know, it's very much, especially in, in you, you even get a slightly uh, unreliable narrative, narrator vibe mm -hmm. of this female character who's played by... Um, uh, Phoebe Dynavor from Bridgerton, of course, so people will know her. Um, mm -hmm. And she's in this passionate relationship with uh, her boyfriend who's just proposed to her. And they are, you know, they have a very sexual relationship. It's a very healthy sexual relationship. Uh, you kind of establish that in one quite uh, will be talked about scene very early on in the film, I think. And they, we find out then, like, they kind of leave and depart and go their own way. And come into the workplace and behave just like work colleagues. And we find out that they're working in New York in the very high stakes work world of venture capitalism, um, where, you know, there's millions being pushed around the table every day. So it's already all of the pressure and power and greed and Gordon Gecko stuff of that. But also because of that, um, there is a strict work policy that relationships are a no-no, absolutely not allowed uh, because, you know, people are playing chess here with billions of dollars all the time mm. and they don't want, you know, they almost want a toxic work environment, I think it's fair to say, is, is how it's established here. Um, yeah. Eddie Marsden is perfectly cast as the, the boss man who's Campbell, uh, a lovely piece of casting. I mean, we've seen him in roles like this before, but he's just this very powerful, scary 
and quite quiet kind of man, uh, which works very well into the dynamic of all these traders, I think, who are, you know, fishing for his affection and fishing for promotion and, and a bit of the power that he's established as one of the top brokers on Wall mm. Street. So I thought that was, oh, that was all very interesting that he played it quite quiet and he brings a sinister quality to it in the quietness. So, uh, you know, she's the only woman on the floor. Uh, we realise, you know, she she's got wind that her boyfriend, who uh, might be getting this promotion into a big, powerful uh, job in the company, and she tells him as much, and they celebrate that night as they do most things by having some passionate sex. Mm-hmm. Um, but imagine how he feels then when the next day uh, he gets a, she gets a phone call from her boss, uh, interestingly at midnight, because that's the power play here. You answer the phone no matter what time of the day or night it rings um, to tell her to come and meet him. And she discovers that it's actually she who is getting that job. I think what happens then is a kind of... Um, there was a Safty Brothers vibe, I think, to John, wasn't there? It kind of gets jitterier and jitterier. And I think that score that's composed by Brian McComber is really, really effective, I think, at capturing the ticking time bomb nature of the stories it builds. Um, it didn't surprise me to, to see that he'd done both a lot of documentary work, but tellingly, I think, horror films such as It Comes at Night. And I thought the score is really one of the stars of the film here. Um, yeah. He senses almost... An immediate cooling off from him. Um, Stop taking her phone calls as immediately as he used to. And I think the filmmaker plays her hand very well here because you're wondering, is she paranoid? And, and he's just joking about not getting the job or is there more of an important shift going on in their relationship? Um, yeah. So that's I think that's really interesting. And I think the, the unreliable narrator thing is played very well there. It kept me guessing for a good while this um, yeah, but she kind of finds out then through increased contact with the bosses and the high rollers that they don't really rate her fiance at all. So yeah. you know that's another growing drift between them. Highlighted by the fact I think that Luke has turned. He's kind of despondent to getting turned down because this is a bit of a religion in this world and this um, boss for Luke. He has, you know. Um, tagged his whole identity on the character of Marsden really and wants to emulate him and has made it his life's goal. So to be overlooked by his girlfriend, fiance, is really kind of stinging him in the soul. Guru, then, I, I won't give too much away, but... Well, I was going I, to say, we're, we're nearing the point where, and that's is very well described, we possibly need to stop in yes. terms of exposition of the plot because that's my way of telling you to stop. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. We possibly <laughs> need to stop because, no, and but, but she gets the job and a bomb goes off in their relationship and we're not sure, as you say, who's good and who's bad, but it becomes... Quickly yeah. enough becomes obvious. So uh, what I thought was great about it, like it's a really good character study, you know, in the realm of an of a kind of a thriller, an erotic thriller. And I thought going back to that kind of, you know, the, I think the erotic thriller went out of fashion in recent years, and I'm kind of very glad to see it back, quite frankly, because I think it gives it a heightened, almost fairy tale quality. It yeah. almost makes this feel like a fable, um, because they're working in this incredibly toxic work environment. Um, if you like Succession I think you love this uh, it has an edge it's a filmmaker I want to see more from Chloe Domont and I think what I didn't read anything about her before I saw the film but I think it was a very telling quote from her of what she's trying to achieve um, that I read afterwards in an interview she said this is a societal and systemic thing that needs to change uh, she says so many of us want to adhere to a modern feminist society but we're still raised with traditional ideals of masculinity and I think they're looking at that ideal of masculinity through a female character here um, yeah. so it's not just like bad men toxic masculinity I think it's it, an interesting thing and what wealth and greed and a quest for power can do to anybody um, yeah. and I think that's really interesting she says you know we believe we raise boys to believe masculinity is an identity when it's not it's an energy and I think through very clever characterization here she's really nailed that point it's really yeah. good, I think. 
I completely agree with you. And they might sound like lofty ambitions, but they're realised. But just to say as well, and I, I think you felt the same, this is a gripping erotic thriller that keeps you watching right until the end. Like you can't really take your eyes off it. And there is a real simple, I want to see what happens here. Like it has that in spades, you know. Well, it all spins into the bedroom, into their behaviour, into mm. the games they play with each other. Um, and yeah, and in... It goes to really disturbing places sometimes as well, but we yes. let people find that for themselves. Really disturbing. Uh, and, and towards the end, it, it, it went somewhere I didn't expect, but brilliant blistering filmmaking and just yeah. on the sex scenes like I agree with you because it's not erotic for eroticism's sake it's conveying their relationship and the character's dynamics through the sex which is really you know go watch a porno if you want to watch sex this is actually sex that you know has a contribution to make to the narrative you know oh completely uh, there's an honesty yeah. to it and I think also it's not particularly graphic most of the time uh, no. but I would say it's really feeding into the characters and how mm. they kind of play games with each other and how they know how to hit on each other's nerves. I think that's yeah. what works for it. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I thought it was really good as well. So uh, what are you going to say stars-wise for Fair Play? I'm giving this definitely for, I think definitely mm. for, an easy for. Um, there's yeah. not much I didn't like about this. There's some story threads that made me balk a little but like that is the whole point I think the filmmaker is trying to press buttons here and I think it's a brave piece of filmmaking uh, yeah yeah I really the like only, the only thing that the one thread I, I wanted to explain more was I didn't get why when she gets the job up until that point we hadn't seen enough of her to know how good she was at the job she did I felt so it kind of caught me off guard why she actually got the job because we hadn't seen that much of the work she did I felt but that's a very small quibble so yeah. I would also give it four stars as well it's highly entertaining and, and there's honestly, a lot going on I, with I, it John I'd also watch a spin-off involving the mother I mean have we met <laughs> a more evil and terrifying mother in screen in recent times and we don't even see a lot of her we, we her just hear her on the phone a lot time. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. that's yeah, 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 great exactly. as well yeah, no, point well made. And I agree with you. I think there'll be a lot of debate about this, particularly about certain scenes and one at the start and one at the end, uh, yeah. which is which is always good. So that's four stars from Esther McCarthy. I will give it four stars as well. Fair play, which is in cinemas from this Friday. And then next Friday will be on Netflix. Let's take a quick clip. You know, it actually would be good for you. You've always had issues asserting yourself. Excuse me? wasn't meant to be an attack. I'm serious, there's a lot of good tips in here. I just read a section on appearance and he broke down like- Appearance? Oh, yeah, right. Okay, never mind. No, no, finish your thought. No, it's okay, just fine, forget it. Is there something wrong with the way that I dress? No, there's nothing wrong with it. Why'd you mention it? Why? Why did you mention it? You know presentation is everything, right? And? And how do you expect people to take you seriously when you dress, you know, like a cupcake? That was a clip from Fair Play, which Esther McCarthy and myself gave four stars. Now, Esther, if it was anyone else, we probably wouldn't even feature this. But as I mentioned earlier, Wes Anderson can, well, I won't say he can do no wrong in my book, uh, in my book because I was slightly underwhelmed by Asteroid City. But mm. I do love the man's work. So uh, the wonderful Mr. Sugar is just shy of 40 minutes. It's, uh, it's a, a short story, a, a kind of adult short story story from Roald Dahl. That's the source material. Yeah, I, like you, was um, I'm ambivalent towards some of his recent films, but I love the fact that somebody, you know, said Wes Anderson's being a bit too Wes Anderson-y about 10 years ago, and he basically <laughs> went, hold my beer. Yeah, uh, And yeah. he's gone more, yeah, more into that fantastic world than ever, I think. And it's yeah. very telling. I think in a short film format, it's very, very obvious. Uh, and I had great fun with this. I thought it was lovely. And I think the short film format works for him. There was talk originally about the wonderful work, story of Henry Sugar being a, a feature film uh, when the Netflix deal with Roald Dahl's estate went through a couple of years ago. But I think 40 minutes is perfect for this. 
Um, you know what? You know when you're watching TV and it's kind of half nine, and you go, "Well, I watch a film now," and you go, "Oh, yeah. direct in the morning." This this is going to feed that little scratch for great storytelling. I think um, it's based on a story written by Dal in 1977 about a man by the name of Henry. He discovers this notebook um, written by a doctor who's Dev Patel having an absolute blast here going, I'm in a Wenz Anderson short. I am going full Wes uh, in ways that really amused me. And I think that story then details his encounter with a character by the name of Imdad Khan, who's played by Ben Kingsley, uh, otherwise known, forever more known as the man who could see without using his eyes. Uh, yeah. which in some beautiful production design, uh, production design storytelling elements throughout the course of this film uh, is, is rendered and proven to be true. Uh, I found that sequence absolutely glorious and so funny. Uh, yeah, everyone's shown up here. Ray Fiennes plays Dal, who kind of, as if we were watching a, a, a you know a, a show from the nineteen seventies, I think yeah. is there and he's you know playing Dal with his wrinkly old jumper and trousers, who introduces us to the story, uh, and it's one of four actually we're getting over the next four days from Netflix. So yeah. happy days! Yeah, I really enjoy this. I think the production design is exquisite again, and the depth of the world that he can create in his imaginations through in, even in the course of a 40 minute feature is just so rich. Um, mm. Find Wes Anderson to Wes Anderson-y, you may as well go home, like forget about yeah. it. Uh, yeah. I, I thought this was very sweet. Well, you see, I, I found him to Wes Anderson-y in Asteroid City, not in most other things, but while I, I really like this as well, because sometimes, you know, particularly with like the French Dispatch, there is a feeling of these are episodes, like it's very episodic. And, you know, even in some of his movies like The Royal Tannenbaums, their chapters introduce each thing like chapter one. But that's perfect. He's brilliant at telling this story. And I thought Benedict Cumberbatch as the card let's call him Shark, without giving yeah. a spoiler, who will use this skill that uh, Ben Kingsley has created. He was great in it. Uh, he really was. And and I love the thing that, you know, there are so many people who will just work with him and, and you get the feeling he, Wes calls and they say yes before they even know what they're doing. So, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it was reminiscent for me, like... One of my favourite Wes Anderson films, and I kind of, I kind of go up to strangers and ask them if they've seen it because I, I, I fear it was little underseen. But it's Moonrise Kingdom, yeah. um, that wonderful film from about 10, 15 years ago that kind of seemed to come and go. And I, I loved the childhood innocence and that, and the, the yeah. heart that it finds, and the humour in it. And I think this film is kind of nodding tonally to that um yeah and i think it's because of the short film format it's a world that could really suit anderson as a creator and sure the perfect marriage with roald dahl for the story yeah, you know absolutely so what would you say stars wise for the wonderful story of henry sugar i'm you got me in a good mood this week john um so i'm giving it four stars again yeah yeah well i i go along with you i think this is the perfect format for wes anderson so that is available on netflix as we speak and the others are dropping depending on when you're listening to this show momentarily uh so more Roald dal and more wes anderson on netflix in the coming days esther mccarthy thank you very much thanks john after the break, Ken Loach's screenwriter, Paul Lafferty, on their last movie together. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. Now, Ken Loach's new movie, and by all accounts his last, is called The Old Oak. The Old Oak is a pub. Not only is it the last pub standing, it is the only remaining public space where people can meet in a once-thriving mining community that has now fallen on incredibly hard times. TJ Ballantyne, played by Dave Trevor, the landlord, hangs onto the old oak by his fingertips and his hold is endangered even more when the old oak becomes con tested territory after the arrival of Syrian refugees who are placed in the village. In a somewhat unlikely friendship, TJ encounters a young Syrian Yara, played by a wonderful actress called Elba Mari, with her camera. Can they find a way for the two communities to understand each other? So unfolds a deeply moving drama about love, fear and the difficulty of finding hope. The screenplay is written by Ken's longtime screenwriter Paul Laverty, who has written most of Ken Loach's movies for the last 30 years and whose credits include fantastic films like The Wind That Shakes the Barley, Looking for Eric, I, Derek Blake, I, Daniel Blake 
and most recently Sorry We Missed You for which Paul Averty joined us in studio and I'm delighted to say he returns again live in person corporeal <laughs> form Paul hello how are you? It's lovely to be back here again John thank you very much for that, that generous introduction Not at all thank you for coming in let me get straight to it I love the way the film starts because we're looking at Charlie played by Trevor Horn in an early scene and he's bemoaning his community, where he's living. There's houses and a house he's lived in all his life, as far as I can tell, or for a long part of his life. And the houses beside him are being sold very cheaply. And there's the almost gentrification isn't the right word, but these people are coming along and trying to short out these houses. And you have sympathy for him. And then three minutes later, and I think it's the same scene, he's bemoaning refugees who are going to come to this place he's so worried about. So you go from sympathy, or I certainly did, to I'm not saying he's being an all-out racist, but it's troubling what he's saying on lots of levels. Is that the heart of the movie in that scene? Um, I'm glad you picked on that because it's it's a there's lots of nuances and mm-hmm. it's contradictory and there's mm-hmm. many, many layers to it. And, um, and that is the reality that's not only being faced, I think, in the UK, but you know, I think probably all around Europe. Ireland and as well. I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised. I think, I think it's happening everywhere. And um, and it is kind of fascinating when you see these once thriving communities and what has happened to them. Mm. They've been abandoned. They've been forgotten. You know, the church is gone. The, you know, the, the library is gone. Everything's all boarded up. You know, they're forgotten. And then there was devastation in the housing market. Mm. You know, some of those houses can be bought. They look like the Hovis Brown adverts for people of a certain generation. Yes. They, look all, they look all lovely. And the old miners, the old miners' houses. Some people were buying them online without ever seeing them, buying them on a Monday and trying to sell them on a Friday. Mm. They were happy to rent them out to anyone. Local authorities down south were sending up problem families to these areas, dumping them up there. People coming out from prison, many lost souls, people have been expelled. Now, the people who live there, I mean, it was devastating for them. You know, their own house, their only asset was totally undermined. And so they felt trapped. And I think when people feel trapped, they feel angry. They've got no agency in their lives and they're forgotten. And then suddenly refugees arrive without any consultation. And then they say, why are they coming here? We've got nothing. We are the poorest of the poor. Mm. You know, I wonder, you know, why do we not send them to Chelsea or Westminster? I wonder if some of the communities in Ireland say, why are we not sending them to Dublin 4? You know, that that type of notion. And there's a truth to that. Yeah. And we've got to understand that. And we've got to unravel that. And the, and, the, and the beauty of spending time in some of these communities, I met people who were holding out the hand of friendship to people traumatised by the war from Syria. Mm. I mean, the stories we heard were just mind-boggling. But they're also smart enough to realise there were genuine difficulties and poverty you know, in the community. And so what they did was they tried to do something for both communities. Mm. Now, that we were really, really interested in the notion of hope and where we find it. Yeah. And um, and I just met some remarkable people, you know, who did build hope. Mm. And, uh, and, and what you have to do then is listen to people. I think hope has got many layers to it. Mm. It's got intelligence. First of all, you've got to unravel the problem. And they're often very, very difficult. So we've got to be honest and try and unravel it. We've got to listen to people. Empathy is next step. You've got to try and put yourself in people's shoes. People coming from Syria, you know, having their life destroyed. Some of the people we met, and the stories were just unimaginable. But also listen to people, you know, who are going hungry, having their electricity cut off. That's happening in these communities. Mm-hmm. And then solidarity. That's a part of hope as well, because the people who put in the hours you know, collect the food, you know, who talk about solidarity and not charity and just try to make things work. Now, that's a massively creative process and it's very, very complex and it's difficult. Yeah. So you have, Hmm. you know, Charlie is the character's name. You know, he's the prison through through which you're working. So you, in short, you do have, not sympathy is the wrong word, but you're saying to people, look, understand why somebody like him might feel aggrieved that there's mm. suddenly a busload of refugees coming. I'm glad you've picked in Charlie, John, and really, really important because you could quite easily have had right-wing thugs coming yeah. in. Yeah. And, and and they do go into these communities I know, and yeah. they try to sow hatred, you know, but there's a kind of a, a stupidity and a crudeness and, you know, and what they do is they kidnap the narrative and they sell and they peddle lies. But what I think is much more interesting and also a bigger challenge is how do good people become like that? Yeah. How do become become like Charlie? You know, layers of self-respect that have been, you know... Um, just worn off them you know and people that are isolated when they lose agency when they get angry you know and uh, and, and there's and 
so I think we have to try and understand that. Because then, of course, there's outright racists, yeah. you know, who sow hatred and lies and they'll always have that. But, you know, but unless we try and untangle it all mm. and understand it all and be creative, the right will move in, the populism will move in and they'll tell lies. And unfortunately, we've got a racist government. And I don't say that lightly. Sue Ella Braverman is our Home Secretary. I don't know if it's been covered here in Ireland. But, you know, the day after uh, an asylum uh, registration place was firebombed, I think it was in October down south somewhere. She well, talked about boats, didn't she? She talked about the invasion of small boats, the invasion, yeah. this incendiary language. In the context, that was, you know, it was incendiary and I would say it's outright racism. Robert Jenrick, another home, home minister, he was the one who painted over cartoon characters in a in a in a in a reception place for unaccompanied children, painted over cartoon characters because he didn't want it to be too welcoming, and you think like, I mean, how could someone be so petty? But when you see what he said, he says we must, we must instill deterrence in every step of the process. Not you know, not 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 to be infused with respect for human rights or fairness or a living playing field with deterrence. In other words, punishment. You know, so that that's the type of environment in which, you know, in in which all this is happening. But, and that might sound, and it is rightly so, very negative, but just going back to the old oak itself, there is lots of optimism here in a way because at its centre we have uh, TJ Ballantyne, played brilliantly, he's not a guy I was familiar with, although I did think he had a bit part in I, Daniel Blake, Dave Turner, he used to be a fireman, right? He was in the Fabricade Union. Yeah, but he's had a hard life and, you know, I hope it's not a huge spoiler, he's divorced and he's clearly made some wrong choices Mm. in his life, but he's clinging on to this pub and the pub may be reinvented as a community centre for all parts of the community, Mm. new arrivals and people like Charlie. So that's clearly, you know, you're you're aiming for the stars in a way here as well. Like you want to say that there is a brighter future for these people. Well, I found my old notebook there and I was trying to, because this was digging around in a search yeah. and, and I found an old book and it says T.J. Ballantyne it's always important to get the name like I Daniel Blake T.J. Ballantyne <laughs> T.J. Ballantyne has lost faith I've met many people like that maybe it's because of my age now you know but you know people who've maybe been you know very active in the community very aware full of energy and just life has worn them down and it's no surprise especially when you're given you know many of the circumstances in which these people live mm. so we're asking the big question where do you find hope again mm. You know, and um, and that's why we looked back even to the tradition of the miners' strike. You know why we wanted to look back. You know, to 1984, the old the old oak. You know, his his uncle was a was a photographer. Mm. All pictures of the the miners' strike there. You know, and that was a key moment in our history. Mm. We had the eight-hour day then. You know, and it's a long, long journey mm. from that eight-hour day to Ricky and sorry we missed you. Titan app working 12 and 14 hours a day not only in terms of legislation and politics but the journey in consciousness John Mm -hmm. was really really remarkable so we wanted to in in time I think I hope these three films will be be seen together so TJ is in this world he is isolated but through the relationships and through the things that happen to him and the choices he makes he does begin to feel the possibility Mm -hmm. of of hope again and I think that is you know I Daniel Blake and Sorry Mystery were both tragedies Yes, but this one does examine hope, and to be honest, right from the very beginning with Ken, it's always been a notion. It's been very, very important. It's been yeah. the subtext in many films. Where do you find hope? There is a beautiful ending that <laughs> manages <laughs> tragedy and hope. I thought it was beautifully done. So, but let's leave oh, it at that. Yeah, and people yeah. need to go and see the movie oh. in the cinema. Tell me this: I, I was thinking about. Sorry, we missed you there, and I, I don't know if if I have this wrong, but I Daniel Blake was huge like it was great and there was people doing the graffiti around the world and I think I remember you telling me last time you're getting videos from North Korea or South <laughs> Korea and stuff with, with I, Daniel You've got some memory mate well, there You have go. some memory But I, I don't think Sorry We Missed You got the recognition it deserved really Did Were you disappointed by the reception of that movie or was it just the wrong time do you think? Um, well, it's very hard to measure it really I was talking to Studio Canal our wonderful distributors yeah. and they told us that actually um, Sorry We Missed You had the best reviews of any of our films mm. you know so it had great reviews but I just uh, I just didn't feel it, it had yeah. the life it deserved uh, well I, it was, I, I honestly don't know the figures and what okay. happened it did lead to it did I mean we were kind of ambushed by Daniel Blake we didn't really expect mm, that to yeah. you know win the Palm d'Or yes. and then we you never know how it lands I mean it's an old bloke signing on who has a heart attack you know I mean I wouldn't be very it wouldn't be very good pitching <laughs> and things in Hollywood would I but suddenly it just seemed to tap into the zeitgeist yeah. 
And I think what happened was it gave people a chance to talk about the cruelty that was hidden because, you know, under the surface, so many people knew stories of people who were humiliated, were scared of bureaucracies. And um, and we'd been picking up this a long time from activists. But it's so complicated, that system. The welfare system is so complicated. But when you see a story and you can put yourself in someone else's shoes and then it just seemed to just... It was almost like a catalyst mm. and so it was debated in Parliament and, you know, the Tories called us liars and then, of course, they provided more evidence of even worse cases than I, Daniel Blake. So it just kind of struck the moment and uh, and very seldom that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, we, we, but we weren't disappointed with the reaction to Sorry We Missed You, no. but it, it wasn't probably as big as I, Daniel Blake. Yeah, but mm. maybe it, it's hard to repeat the success of that. But I'm delighted yeah. that this mm. is viewed as a trilogy and I hadn't really thought of it that way because mm. just not you're not here to speak for Ken, but mm. I, Daniel Blake, kind kind of got him out of retirement and now you've done these three movies and now perhaps you can tell me he's 86 and he's thinking you know now is a good time is is that definitely it? Yes well he's 87 now Oh is he? uh, We we actually shot the most wonderful scene in Durham Cathedral on his 86th birthday Mm -hmm. it was a very very special day and even the choir sang him happy birthday much to his his embarrassment in the cathedral and uh, so it was a very special day that but this film it took it was it was much bigger we had to cast so many people all the Syrian families all the children all the people in the pub Mm -hmm. I mean that was six months heavy casting along with the wonderful Colleen Crawford been, if you're doing that as a 14 year old you're coming back you know out to school talk to 40 children you might pick one you know to get mm. them back for the second stuff and you're coming back home and getting a Chinese meal at 11 o'clock at night yeah. that knackers you he was away yeah. from you know and he was away from home so much and then of course we had Covid you know would we be able to resurrect the project yeah. again and then um, so to be honest most people wouldn't have done it and wouldn't have dived in but it was Ken's political commitment that got through it and I was so relieved that he got through it safe, safe and sound. Because that was, you know, I mean, COVID was scary. We lost a lot of people yeah. during COVID. And, and like I say, he was, he's 86, 87 now. So he's my friend first, always yeah. will be. We've had the most amazing run, you know, doing, I, I don't know how many films I've done, maybe about 14 or something. And um, so for me, the glass is half full. Good. And we'll, you know, we'll continue to work together and many other things, you know, outside film. But I think this will be his last feature film. Whether he goes on now and does, you know, something that's more controlled, not as heavy, like a documentary or yeah. something, because he's still on fire. You've kind of answered my question because I was going to say, you know, this is probably the defining creative partnership of your life. Is there going to be mm. a grief that it's over now? But it sounds <laughs> like you're very much going to still be in each other's life. So I won't, I won't Oprah Winfrey it too much for you. Let me just go back to the old oak for a second. That's a nice one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the pub mm. and in Ireland, probably even more so than England, it is a place, particularly in rural Ireland, that used to bind a community together. They are social institutions and I've seen that in the, the town my mother grew up in. Are pubs in the UK under stress the yeah. way the old oak is? Oh, yes. There was, I mean, this is where I got the idea wandering around those villages. Mm. I mean, the amount of pubs that have just closed down. It's remarkable. I think... I think one statistic I read, I think it was 570 closed down last year. It might even be more. It really was, or in some places is, the only public place standing in many of these places. And it just fitted in with the story. And also, of course, the name of the oak, it means a great deal in English folklore as well. The old oak that we saw had to be reconstructed and rebuilt by the wonderful Fergus Clegg. Uh, But some of the when you saw the the old rules <laughs> still up on the wall, you'll be barred for you'll be barred for one month for fighting. You know, it yeah. gave you an indication of where that pub was heading. You know, tell me this: mm. I work, and you've alluded to it already, but I work in mm. a place as you can see called News Talk. So I talk to plenty of English people, and there is a sense that things are very gloomy over there. And talking to journals and different concerned citizens, and it's very easy for an Irish person to talk about Brexit and almost go, I told you so. But I genuinely, objectively have a sense that Britain is a bit screwed at the moment. Mm. I, I take it you think exactly the same thing. Um, well, it's many more eminent people than me think it's screwed. I mean, I've just been talking to Danny Dorling, the wonderful um, professor at Oxford University, mm-hmm. who has been... He's got all the statistics. I heard him speak at the Edinburgh Book Festival. He showed 50 graphs proving it. This is the worst standard of living crisis since 1798, going back to the Napoleonic Wars. We've got 7 million people on waiting lists, you know, in the National Health Service. 
you know, many prisoners, you know, are now locked up for 23 hours a day. I could go on and on and on. There's a crisis now in housing. We've got the most incompetent government, you know, mediocre people, you know, and, and, and you know, who, who are now, and we've got also a totally anodyne opposition. You know, mm-hmm. Stammer is like another Blair. You could hardly separate his rhetoric you know, on, on the position of, of the boats from, from, from the Tories. So it is bleak times. And the real big question is, you know, how do we, how do we get our hands in the, on, on the levers of power again? How do we build hope? You know, how do we, how do we build functioning communities? How do, we, how do we confront those who will sow hatred and populism mm. and stupidity and ignorance? So there's great challenges ahead. The good thing is there's great people out there. They're still very, very strong, creative people. Young people give you a chance. Look how angry they are mm-hmm. at the climate change, mm-hmm. despite the depressing figures that this is, this is in history. We're going to burn more fossil fuel this year than our entire history. And the, and the subsidies are even greater. So that disconnect between science, you know, and public policy, it's kind of mind boggling. It is tough times to look for hope. And, and, uh, and I think we have to look for that because I think hope is political. Because if you don't have any hope, you become you be, you, you lose energy, you you sink into yourself or your own community, your own family. You don't think of the bigger picture of the community, mm-hmm. and and essentially, I mean, I've I've been to the states, I've seen what gated communities are like. I've lived in downtown LA, you know, places where there's tremendous violence and people don't feel safe. We can't take safety and coherence for granted, and I think you know we really have got some massive, massive challenges ahead of us. Okay, quick scattergun of of one or two of the other movies, if you would allow. Uh, Sweet (laughs) Sixteen, a glorious, again, dark in places, occasional bouts of hope and all. I think that's a, I think that's a remarkable movie that, you know, sometimes Wind That Shakes the Barley or I, Daniel Blake gets a lot of attention but are there any particular memories of making that movie because I love Sweet Sixteen. Oh, thanks. Uh, I've got, I've got a very, I've got a lovely friend in the States, um, Ramin Barani, who did White Tiger, he's mm-hmm. an Iranian American filmmaker, and and he, he loves that. He really loves that film, you know. And mm-hmm. he studied it and works with students. He teaches at Columbia, and it's funny. It seems to resonate with people. I've got great memories of it. I remember sitting down to write that one, and I said, like, like, you know, let's be on story, mm-hmm. you know, and um, just make sure that every scene is just racing along, and and it helps when you have a a protagonist, you know. Like the, the 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 young lad in that, mm-hmm. you know, because he was Brilliant, he had yeah. great energy, and we also found a remarkable young lad called Martin Comston who's never stopped acting since. Yeah. William Ruan, he unfortunately stopped acting, but I thought that lad was a brilliant actor. I remember when we did the first improvisations with him. Mm-hmm. He just did not know what he was thinking. There mm-hmm. was such an unexpected quality. He, I, I think he's a I think he's a remarkable act, a, actor. And little Gary Maitland, who was the comic sidekick, yeah. you know, he's gone on to do other. He was an angel share for us. You know, Another a, a, great com, movie. Com, he's a comic genius. If if he had a different accent, there'd be sitcoms built around him. <laughs> so we, I mean, as Ken always does, he, he finds great talent. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and he takes a chance. Paul Brannigan and Angel Share. I mean, mm-hmm. Paul's talked about this in public. That's why I don't feel I'm revealing anything. But you know, he came from the toughest background. You know, he'd just not long been released from junior prison, Pullman mm-hmm. Prison. Who else would have taken a chance on someone like that? Mm-hmm. And he was brilliant. He couldn't have found someone who was more diligent and worked hard. And I love how Ken will just take a risk and he always says, let's try and find a person who will give flesh and blood to the character imagined in the script. Yeah. And he's been fearless in it. And he just yeah. keeps finding people from David Bradley, you know, in case I met, I met him uh, six weeks ago. He's now seventy. That young wow. lad, the boy uh, with the bird. Yeah, the boy with the bird. In case. Wow. Seventy now, lovely 70. lad. Good lord. And uh, and then he was there alongside Dave Turner in his first film, and he just people say, well, how did he keep finding, you know, people? Well, he's got a great cast and director in Callan Crawford. Crawford, but he does the graft. He works his backside off, and then he's also got a great eye, and uh, and you know, the, and the films that we've done. We've just found remarkable people again yeah. and again. Ta- I mean, an amazing talent out there. There really is. Yeah. En route to my final question. <laughs> That's the way of saying I'm going to ask you two more questions. As a lifelong Everton fan, this oh. isn't easy for me to ask, but <laughs> Eric Cantona, I just remember at the time I was working in here and going, 
he's in a movie and he's <laughs> going to play kind of a fictionalized version of himself. This is bananas, and it's 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 an amazing piece of work. It really is. Was he? Mm. It, it was he on board and. It seemed like he was there, hook, line and sinker and was loving it. <laughs> it was funny because it was hilarious coming into the airport today. I remember yeah. coming into the airport and, um, with Eric to do the publicity. Maybe I saw you then, John, I can't remember. But anyway, it, oh, he was he was hilarious. But we'd, oh, yeah, it was it was at the, the lighthouse. Oh, yeah. and Still was, standing. And there was, I'm glad to hear it because a lot of cinemas are going down. But oh, it was hilarious. Eric was there and there was more fans yeah. there than there was in Manchester. But just come from Manchester. <laughs> and then this guy... You know, trying to get your signature. He whipped off his top, you know, and there they had a full tattoo of Eric on his back. Wow. And then he says, sign it, sign it. And so Eric goes, what the, f-? you know? So he signed it and then he was running off to get it tattooed. And uh, But anyway, the, the thing with Eric was he approached us about a story about a Leeds fan following him from Leeds okay. to Manchester United. And, and I couldn't find a way into that. Yeah. You know, but actually when I met Eric, I was fascinated by Eric. Mm. And since you're a football man, maybe I've, have you got a moment for this story? Is it too long? Go ahead. <laughs> We've all night. Uh, anyway, anyway, Eric, I was I had a terrible flu, and I was just watching him, and then I remembered a goal that he did a one-two with um, the the Scottish player for for Man United. Oh God, I can't believe I forgot his name. He used to play for Celtic, and he did a one-two, and then he scored this goal against Sunderland. And uh, you know, I'm using it in the film, but it was the way he just chipped it right into the corner. Yeah. But that's not only what killed me. He just turned round, stuck out his chest, and he just turned to the four corners, and people just worshipped him. Yeah. And in that moment, I just felt this man—he's had the brass neck, the intelligence, the physical capacity to do. He's fulfilled every single possible talent that he has. Mm. And then I thought, what if there's a wee guy in the crowd who's the exact opposite of that? He's a little guy called Eric. He's slipping through his own fingers. He hasn't solved his past. His children don't listen to him. He's invisible to the rest of the world. And I thought, what would happen if he sees Big Eric after the occasional spliff and looks for his advice? Now, that's how that story happened. And I said it to Eric and I said it to Ken. And they just both burst out laughing. They said, let's have a crack at that. (laughs) So it was like a little, I'll blame the flu. Or maybe it was, maybe I had one, two whiskeys too much. So sometimes a story lands in your lap by accident. Yeah. Uh, Brian McClare, Brian McClare. Oh, yes, Uh, yes, One, two with Brian McClare. Dementia strikes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you gave it a good crack. And then finally, I noticed a thing today. I read the production notes and you quoted St. Augustine. And then in an interview in the Irish Independent that I saw today, you also quoted St. Augustine with a different quote. Is Are you having a late blooming <laughs> Augustian conversion or anything? <laughs> it was really hilarious last night in, uh, in Newcastle. This professor yeah. from the university came up to me and she says, you've made that quote up, haven't you? And I burst out laughing. And she goes, are you seriously thinking I made up a quote? And then I gave her another one of... Um, um, Another one which 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 I love, um, charity is no substitute for justice withheld, which I love. And she goes, did you mean that one as well? And I goes, and I said, I'll give you another one, you know, and you can tell me whether I'm, ma- I'm, tell- I'm making them up or not. Yeah. And this is my favourite one from, from St. Augustine. This is chastity, but not yet. <laughs> 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 yes, well, uh, but, well it's, it's, it's interesting, John, isn't it? Because um, all those notions, all those questions about, I mean, Charity, you know, mm-hmm. for the just help. I mean, that's from fifteen hundred years ago. Yeah, I mean, and, and it is kind of remarkable. So maybe the same issues just go round and round and round, mm-hmm. and they're timeless. Yeah, and that's what I do. You, you never know. I was a seminarian, were you? <laughs> <laughs> that might be the perfect place to end. Yeah. The Old Oak <laughs> is in cinemas on the 29th of September. It is oh, yeah. classic Loach and Laverty. Paul, it's been a real pleasure to yeah. have you here in studio. Thanks a million. It was a, a total delight. I really enjoyed that, John. Thank you. My children will never see the temple in Tadmor, Balmera, built by the Romans and destroyed by the Islamic State. When you have half of your country in rubble and you see this, it makes me want to cry. What will Syria be like in a thousand years? How many years to cut the stones? To lift the weight? To imagine the light? How many brilliant minds? How much sweat? How many people working together? 
Such a beautiful place. It makes me want to hope again. Eb Lamari there, who plays Yara in the Old Oak, talking in what turns out was Durham Cathedral. And the Old Oak is in cinemas from this Friday, the 29th of September. And before that, you heard me talking to Paul Lafferty about the Old Oak and a huge amount more besides. And if you're listening on the radio, I should tell you that on the podcast version of this show, there's an even longer interview because that man has a lot to say a fascinating kind of guy I sometimes think a Scottish accent is half the battle I know that sounds very reductive but I just sometimes think someone speaking with a Scottish accent you listen to them I'm, I'm, I'm serious about that they have a they're halfway in the door with that accent so there you go I, I'm sure he won't mind me saying that he's a lovely lovely man he's a Liverpool fan as well let's not get into that Thank you for listening. Uh, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage, please email me, screentime at Newstalk.com or you can tweet me, John underscore Fardy. Next week on the show, I will be talking to the director of the movie we talked about earlier in the show, Fair Play, uh, Chloe Dumont. I'll also be talking to the Irish playwright and uh, writer, you Eugene O'Brien and we will be reviewing the new version of The Exorcist God help us I mean that in every sense of the phrase in the meantime thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend and have a safe week ahead